This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Great, guys, buying a new car or that new dress that you saw in the shop or that new t-shirt or, or your kind of designer pet that you, uh, you've been waiting a long time for is super cool. I'm sure you agree. You, you've enjoyed those moments, the kind of new car smell or new shirt smell. Uh, you kind of feel like one in a million and nothing can stop me now. You're kind of strutting your stuff down the street. You're kind of floating like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and all of a sudden, you see like three of the same shirts that you've just bought, like on different people. Or you, you immediately just start seeing the same car that you've just bought everywhere. You never noticed it before, but all of a sudden, you see it. Or that kind of cockapoo or poodle, you know, those different designer breeds of dogs, and all of a sudden, they're everywhere. Have you experienced that before? It's not a sign of madness, really. Uh, I want to encourage you. It's, in fact, quite the opposite. It's the thing called a scotoma, and it's, a, it's an effect in your brain that constantly filters out information that is relevant to your life and your situation, and relevant to the way that you see the world in that moment, your, your worldview, if you like. Now, I'm no sociologist, but in short... We see the things we need to see. We hear the things we need to hear. And we gain access to the information which is relevant to our lives in the here and now to make us act in line with the decisions or, and, and, and make decisions in line with our worldview. It's the thing that keeps you sane, keeps you acting in line with the way that you believe and see the world. It would be impossible to go through life uh, without having these things in place. You would act, can you imagine, acting in a different way to, to what you believe. And it's the way that God's kind of made the wiring in the brain. It's the way that we all function and it keeps us sane. Um, and this kind of selective information is not a, an excuse, husbands, for selective hearing. That is something completely different, my wife tells me. Um, but it's fascinating stuff nonetheless. And, and as I was kind of pondering these things, it makes me realize that a verse like Romans 12, 2, which says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, kind of takes on a whole new level of, of meaning when you sort of see the way that God has made the human being to function out of belief and out of uh, a worldview that He's put in place for us. I think even more fascinating than it just happening with your car or your t-shirt, is that this happens in your life every day, every decision, every set of attitudes you've got, every little beliefs, these things are 
being driven by this dominant worldview that we have. And the driver behind the steering wheel of our lives is this idea that if we consistently live out the worldview that we hold, we will live in a place of total joy, total satisfaction, salvation, if you will. Every moment, we're running through these processes. Sometimes a bit more uh, cognitively than other times, you're thinking about it. Most of the time, it's just totally subconscious. We function uh, in line with these beliefs, the decisions we make, the conversations we have or don't have, the people we choose to hang out or don't hang out with. It's based on these things. In fact, even the careers we choose to follow are based are, are put in this worldview paradigm and we make decisions on it. In fact, when we double-click on that, even the way that we do our work is a process or is a product of this worldview process. And all of this, in order to subconsciously reach this place of total joy, ultimate satisfaction, and ultimate peace, our dominant scripture for today is a short one, and I'm going to be saying it lots. I'm going to hopefully encourage you to say it with me um, along the way, but it's 1 Corinthians 10.31, and it says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's no different approach to family life or to my work life or to my play life. No, no. There is only 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, whatever you do, do all, all to the glory of God. What a great word. All of a sudden, it just levels the playing field. It's not complicated. It's simple. It's straightforward. Whatever we do, we do to the glory of God. But you might have a significant different way of seeing the world than what many of us might have. That's no problem. I will, however, aim to show that this morning that holding a biblical worldview, one where Jesus Christ is Lord of all our lives, is a vastly superior, vastly funner, vastly more joy-filled way of doing life which will satisfy, fully satisfy, every desire of the human heart. And in fact, is the only way to do that. I hope to show that an ever-deepening love for Jesus affects the way that we do all of life, but with a particular focus this morning for us in our series, um, 9 to 5, as we look at the place that we spend the majority of our lives, our waking life, which is our work. So before we do that, I'd love to pray. I, I need it. Oh, Lord, we need it. We need your presence. Please bring Scripture to life. Bring real life to land in our, our minds as we think about it. We don't just want to autopilot through life. Lord, we want to bring all of our life under subjection to Jesus, His Lordship, the Gospel, we know that this is the best place for us. It's the safe place for us to be. It's the place where we 
experience fullness of joy, ultimate peace, full satisfaction in Jesus. Win our hearts again this morning, I pray. Amen. Great. Well, I hope you know by now that when, when we speak about work in our series, we don't just speak of uh, the person sitting behind the desk reading emails, okay? Because there are many of us that that's not what our work looks like. Some of us drive buses. Uh, some of us um, are uh, driving kids around. That's your full-time job, okay? Some of us uh, do washing at home all day. Oh, hopefully not all day, goodness. A lot of it. That's your job. Some of us do sit behind a desk and answer emails. Some of us drink coffee for our job. That's, that's kind of what I do. I, mean, that's, right? so I really suffer for the sake of the gospel. Um, some of us are retired. You spend your time enjoying your garden and hanging out with your neighbors. and that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about your workplace. It's the place where you spend your time, your energy, your focus place where you're a bit more deliberate about life. It's not just the TV watching stuff, it's the other stuff, the other stuff. And when we look at these things, when we think about them, the, our worldview so affects it. So the way we see the world around us, our worldview, it highlights certain things that we value and that we chase after. We think these things will bring us joy, satisfaction, pleasure, peace. These values are good things, can be very, very good things. Sometimes they're bad things, but very often they're good things that become ultimate things when we start chasing them above Jesus or above gospel living, above the glory of God. Because we think they will satisfy. And these things, these values, these things that we often chase, we call them idols. I know you've, you might have heard these words before. I'm not talking about pop idols, um, but maybe sometimes these idols are as short-lived as pop idols. They come, they go. Um, maybe if you're, if you're not a believer, this word is, is uncommon to you, but, or the usage of it. Think of uh, We would think of something that's kind of a dead-end road where you get to the end and it's, oh, it doesn't go through. It's a rabbit warren from, it's a rabbit trail from where we originally should have continued on, but I took a detour into something that was unhelpful and ended up stealing my money, my joy, my peace, my friendships, my uh, satisfaction, rather than doing what it promised. These things are idols. During the 17th and 18th century, the dominant worldview was called the traditional worldview. And during this period, things like race, and nation and family were dominant themes, dominant idols in the culture. And some of the things that happened out of that is uh, colonialism. Um, we, we, we saw the world somehow take on a different shape. The maps were drawn differently because all of a sudden nations with pride uh, of their own nation and the desire to kind of build empires for themselves are going all over the show. My nation, South Africa, has been the... The, um, the scene of many a colonial power in and out. And many nations are still reaping the, the painful history of that. And racism is the ultimate sort of side of racial pride. So 
somehow through this racial pride, racism came into existence, and not just that, but slavery was the ultimate sort of uh, extension of this idol. In terms of family, family feuds and kind of family rivalries and things, because it's us against them. Um, but at the same time, there was a, a community feel. There's this idea of self-sacrifice and honor and for the glory of my family, nation, my people. And there are pros and cons to all of these worldviews. But all of these things are, the, these idols were there to try and live out the worldview and if you did it successfully, we would receive as a culture the prize of achieving our goals. We would together achieve success during this traditional period if we lived by self-sacrifice, honor, integrity, those kind of words which many would consider old-fashioned today. Then came the modern worldview, the modernity, kind of kicked in during the, 18th, the, the 19th and the 20th centuries. And it saw the rise of science and reason as the ultimate means by which we would achieve our communal, social, cultural goals. No longer were we looking as a people to religion to give us a sense of absolute moral, but there developed no higher right than an individual to be able to choose their own destiny and live the life they wanted. In fact, the only moral wrong in this time was to prevent individuals from choosing their own destinies. Some of those things are kind of trickling through into our culture right now. The American dream concept, work hard and you'll be able to achieve whatever you want, was the sort of mantra of the, the modern era, the modern worldview. Work itself became an idol. Work itself became a means of uh, success, achievement, and salvation. Success at all costs, in fact, because I, I'm not responsible for you, I'm responsible for me. I, I don't need to worry about stepping on you and your freedoms and your rights because it's my right to do that. It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Individualism really started spiraling upward at that point. And it was during this period that achievement in the workplace began to be seen as the key to success in life. And I think many of us straddle this worldview and this current worldview, which is the postmodern worldview. Some would say we're kind of moving through that already, but for the sake of simplicity, the postmodern worldview is, is the time that we're living in right now as a culture. The philosopher and atheist uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, he soundly, very soundly argued that the modern worldview was flawed. Now keep in mind, Nietzsche was an atheist. He was a very avid anti-Christian. But Nietzsche realized the modern worldview was completely flawed. How can you say there were no moral absolutes to uphold, but at the same time call people to honor the individual rights and freedoms of all people? How do you do that? How do you bring these two things together in a coherent worldview? Something is going to come crashing down. These two things are completely opposed. Postmodernism developed then, and it was more a mood than it was a set of beliefs. 
the traditional worldview and the modern worldview had a set of beliefs. Postmodernism is just a feeling. It's that, yeah. That's why we've got the, the um, little icon on our phone, the little emoji, the meh icon. It's the postmodern worldview kind of in a nutshell there. Mass cynicism. Mass cynicism about any truth claims, whether they are ancient or modern. Mass pessimism over people and government's ability to lead us into any sort of coherent, positive, common future. And it led to the idolization of methods, methodology, of ways of doing things, of managing life, rather than a specific outcome. And a common goal finally gave way in our time, in our culture, to pure individualism. I reckon a post-Second World War society where nuclear bombs are pointed at in every which way has led us as a, as a culture to a place where it seems there is no common hope, there is no common good, there is only today. And for the first time in history, the postmodern world has no great sense of common direction or destiny to give themselves to. No big cause to spend our lives on, to give ourselves to, to give our resources to. No inspiring mission, nothing to live for or in fact to die for. What do you reckon are some of the the effects of these idols, or some more of these idols that, that you've observed, um, listening to this, and just in the culture around us, when we think of kind of living for today. We live for the here and the now, and things evolve from the work hard and achieve modern worldview mentality to now, here, today. Tolerance of anything and everything became the sort of mantra of our time. We're tolerant over anybody's thoughts, actions. We became the microwave generation. Fast food, fast cars, fast women or men. Anything to give us a sense of power and of control over our lives in the here and the now. Sounds quite morbid, doesn't it? The traditional culture valued teaching, medicine, military service as some of the most revered professions. So during that 17th, 18th century, if you were a soldier, you were right up there. That's why probably our, our, um, our royal family today are all soldiers. I think it's a throwback from a time when that was seen as the ultimate, the pinnacle of serving and honor and self-sacrifice. The modern culture brought a shift towards science, mathematics, and economics. Men were put on the moon. Einstein's solved equations of space relativity. Mother Teresa's and others were honored for their work in solving world hunger and poverty. But our postmodern culture has seen a major shift. Finance and banking, marketing and advertising now seem to feed the idols of, I need it now, I want it now, I'll get it now, generation. Um, encouraging a creation of a persona by the brand clothes that we wear and by our social media profile. 
and easy access to buy the life we now deserve with credit. The previous cultures spoke about a life lived well, with character, integrity, honesty, courage, self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Today, we generally speak of a life going well. In other words, I'm achieving my expected lifestyle and quality goals. Why on earth am I going on about these kind of things and a preach about work? My point, friends, is that the reality of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension into glory leave us in a position of needing to choose how we want to live our lives. What worldview are we going to embrace and how we want that worldview to shape our lives? The bulk of our awake time is spent at work. This is a critical area to apply ourselves and our thinking, critical thinking, and the gospel to. Have we accidentally stumbled into just following the dominant culture of our time, believer or not? Do we look any different? Do we sound any different in our workplace? Do we smell any different? Or are we actively choosing to be shaped by the gospel and a cross-shaped worldview? Let's use the imagery of the cross to help us in our intended goal of applying this gospel to our workplace to empower us to do all to the glory of God. And there's this picture that I've got, which are the four little elements that we're going to touch on. The gospel worldview, laying down of idols, and you'll see the gospel worldview is at the top. It's kind of where the head is. is let's get it in our heads. Let it filter down into our hearts, and then allow us to then lay down the idols, these dominant things that fight for our attention and our affections, other than Jesus. And then we, we look to the left and the right in terms of what we do. What do we do in our workplace and who we do it with? Those two will be very brief, but I think just as wonderful. So the good news of Jesus in terms of the gospel worldview is that the gospel and the worldview truths that it brings has a deep and far-reaching implication for our lives. I looked at four elements of what it does, and, and then we'll look at, within the workplace, how those same identity, value, purpose, and destiny uh, are lived out, and the idols that fight against it. So we're given an identity. We're given an identity by the gospel, by Jesus. He says, unconditionally loved, sons, daughters, a new family. Here they sit. If you're a believer, this is the family. They'll never leave you. Just like Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, this is the family that carries each other through thick and thin. And we are right with God. We are at peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified, just think of it this way, just as if I'd never sinned, justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.17, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. There's your identity. It's no longer the 
bad guy, bad girl that did this, did that in your previous life. You are a new creation. New creation. When we now slip up, it's not our identity. It's the sin. It's the old man trying. It's that old life trying to rob away our identity. Trying to tell us we are something that we are not. We are new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. That's who you are. If you are in Christ, your identity is secure. But we are given value by the gospel, by Jesus. If we value, uh, value is the price paid for something. And if the price paid for us is the thing that determines our value, then we are of infinite value. I hope you smile at that. You are infinitely valuable and precious because the infinitely valuable and precious one, Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, so loved us that he came to earth. He took on human likeness. He lived the righteous life we could never live. And he took our place to die, to be punished for our sin on the cross, our rebellion against God as he died on the cross. And then, as he's risen up, resurrected, it's the sign that God is pleased. The Father is pleased with his sacrifice. And that sin is forgiven for those who place their faith in Jesus and that we are in right standing. We are righteous before God. Colossians 1 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. But we're also given a purpose. Live life to the max, friends. Many of us think that becoming a Christian meant giving up all the fun, giving up life, giving up all the, the cool stuff that we could do. Because Christians are dull and boring people. No ways. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That is the Christian life and the joy and the purpose of life. Live it for the glory of God. Our, our passage, whatever you do, do all. Come on, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are Christ's missionaries, His ambassadors. We represent our Lord before all the world and making disciples of, of all the nations. 2 Corinthians speaks of what uh, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That is our purpose in life. We live as ambassadors, missionaries, living out a fullness of life, all to the glory of God. And we have a promised destiny. If you're a believer, if you follower of Jesus Today, on the day you close your eyes in this life, there is a certain hope in a future that we will open our eyes in eternity with Jesus in the next moment. 1 Peter 1 says, Now we live with great expectation. There's a book in there somewhere. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled. Yes, Lord, please, pure and undefiled. Beyond the reach of change and decay. Though you do not see Him, you trust Him. If you're a believer, that's you. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your souls. 
That's your destiny, friends. These wonderful truths flow from the Scriptures into our heart, and they walk into our workplaces with us. They drive into our workplaces. They go on our bikes with us. They train in with us. And it allows us to now go critically, think in, thinking into our workplace to say, what are the idols that are, are fighting for our affection and our attention? Thomas Chalmers, a gentleman from, of old, uh, wrote this about the expulsive power of the greater affection. He said, a new affection is more successful in replacing an old aff- affection than simply trying to end it without supplanting it with something better. In other words, have you ever tried to stop a bad habit? It's like, oh, it's like pulling teeth. It's super hard and painful. What Chalmers is saying, the charming man that he is, he's saying, get something better and fill the hole that you're trying, the thing you're trying to press out of your life, fill it with this better thing. Fill it with something that is joyful, that is fully satisfying, better. A deepening love for God and a grasp for the Scriptures increasingly allows us to spot the idols in our lives and our workplace that compete for ultimate lordship of our lives. Doing all to the glory of God means spotting and then expelling these idols that promise so much. They promise fulfillment, but ultimately fall woefully short. And then replace them with things that are ultimately satisfying. When we have our identity fixed in Christ, there's no degree of work, success, or failure that will determine who I am. What I do will not define me. Are you ashamed of the work that you do? Are you afraid to tell people what you do? Maybe you're really proud of telling people what you do. No climbing or descending the corporate ladder will raise or diminish who I am in Christ. No chasing control or significance or power can bring the joy or satisfaction that is found in resting in Christ. I wonder what idols drive your workplace identity. Spot them. Put your finger on them. Allow the Holy Spirit to just point something out and expel it by the grace of God. Draw something fresh and new and totally, fully satisfying into it. Something better. With our value determined by Christ... Although work is very often a a primary way that God provides for our needs through salaries or commissions, but no salary slip will dictate your value. No multi-million bottom line in the black or in the red will determine your value. Whether you manage a Fortune 500 company with 10,000 employees or you're struggling to manage, manage your lunchtime budget. Your value is set in Christ. You are precious beyond value because He who loves you and gave Himself up for you is ultimately precious. Friends, it means that when you work hard, 
you're doing it not because you're somehow trying to create an identity or work towards one or please God or impress the people around you. You're doing it out of faith and out of joy and out of pleasure. It frees us to work hard. It frees us to love our salaries and to enjoy it and be generous with it. It doesn't give us the value. Friends, it's a biggie. It's a biggie. Because value, money, power, self-control, self-sufficiency, these idols steal from the glory that is rightfully God's. He wants to be the ultimate source of our life, our resources, our, our money. He, he wants to be the source. He wants to be known as the source. He wants to be worshipped as the source. When we follow these idols... We're stealing the glory from God and we're trying to heap it on ourselves. Oh, the horror of it. God wants to be our source of all things, friends. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I love this word, all. It just keeps coming through. All things. But with our purpose set in Christ, when our purpose is set in Christ, Hebrews 2 says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. This is Christ. Because of the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. When our purpose is set in Christ, we can endure hardships. When tough times come, we can go through them. We can suffer well for the sake of the ultimate joy of knowing the nearness of Christ, the grace of Christ. Expel the idea. Expel it. If we use charmer language, expel the idea of choosing the easy road at work for the sake of comfort or the easy buck. Cheltenham is the town of comfort and easy. It's great. Love it. But don't let this become an ultimate idol. We need to fight hard to expel this idol by choosing the right road, the road that glorifies God in all things above the easy road. And it's not just because of the glory of God. There is that as an ultimate priority. But when we choose the right road, which might bring us through suffering and hardship over the easy road, it is also the road that draws us near to God where His strength and His grace and His love flow to support every moment of our journey. Through Him, Romans 5 says, through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And when Christ is our eternal destiny, and when it's secure, we don't need to work our fingers to the bone. We don't have to worship work. We don't have to worship hard work to see our name in lights for five minutes. We don't need to chase that bucket list. Eternity is long. There's a new heavens and a new earth to do all the things that you and I want to do and to achieve.
Our friends, let's work hard to allow our ceilings to become the next generation's platforms. If we got a sense of destiny, we don't need to fight to try and prove ourselves to look the best at the end of life. We can keep pressing others forward above ourselves. But these are so subtle and sneaky little idols. I, um, I had a friend in the Air Force who, um, he'd come second on course, uh, on, my, on, on one of our training courses when I'd, I'd come first. And during one of our, uh, I was sick on leave. And when I came back, the, the privilege which should have been mine for coming first on course, he'd taken by uh, saying negative things about me to my superiors. And I, uh, I just, it grated me, no end. And later, he did something very silly, which ended up in a, in a plane crash. And I ended up using that as the opportunity to cut him off at the knees. Um, you know, using things like, you see, I told you he's a you know, so-and-so and he's no good. And, and to my great disappointment and sadness, I've never been able to fix that relationship. And the opportunity to share my joy in Christ and my security in my eternal destiny that I don't need to prove myself better than somebody next to me, wasted an opportunity in petty jealousy and envy. Friends, if we want to work hard, let's work hard for the glory of God and His joy. And let's work hard expelling purposefully, deliberately, violently, the things that are fighting for our affections and stealing glory from God. Very briefly, we've looked up, we've looked down, and we've laid things before the cross. We look left and we look right. On our right-hand side, the horizontal, there are people, and there are the, the jobs that we do. In the jobs that we do, um, if your job allows you to do it all to the glory of God, go for it. There are no jobs that are off limits, but you might want to pause if, there is, if your job is causing obvious harm to yourself or others. Take a moment to think. You might want to pause if it's going to break the laws of the land. Pause long and hard on that one. You might even want to pause, even if it doesn't hurt anybody or it's not breaking the laws of the land, but pause if your conscience is being seared by something that's going on. However, if you are able to make sense within the gospel worldview of the job that you're doing, run hard, go for it, for everything that you're worth. Do it all to the glory of God. You might be wondering, maybe some of you are, are, are young people looking to the future. How do I choose a job? I've got this little diagram that I've just loved and I've found so helpful over the years. Um, I call it the sweet spot diagram. And... The first thing to look at is the G, is gifting. What am I good at? What are, you, what are your talents? Huh? What are your giftings? What are the things that as you steward them well, you're bringing worship to God? And it's a joy to you at the same time. Secondly is the P, the passion. What are you passionate about? What brings your blood to boil? What brings an abundance of life? That John 10.10, 10, that you may have an abundance of life in Jesus. 
often the things that you are good at and the things that you like most are a great starting point, that sort of middle spot to look for a career path. But the third place I think is fascinating as well, the need. Micah 6.8 says, He's, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There's so many ways to walk humbly with our God, to uh, love people, love kindness, do justice. Many kinds of needs to be met. Spiritual needs, physical needs, scientific needs, financial needs, medical needs, educational needs, business needs, government, arts, sports, social, culture. There are massive needs out there. In fact, any job, any sphere you can think of, there are needs to be met. Look at that red sweet spot in the middle. If you can find that, Dolore. But, doesn't always work that way, does it? There's this next one, which I just call the sovereignty of God, which just sort of trumps all of it. Sometimes we just have to do what we need to do, for a season or for a reason. Find rest in God in those moments. Do all to the glory of God, and you will come out stronger, full of passion, and full of faith. And then looking the other way, who do we do it to and with and for? The people around us. Every job, every endeavor gives us the opportunity to apply the gospel and consider the people involved. As we consider Jesus and the way that He lived life, it allows us to lay down our lives for one another in our workplace. Can you think about that? What is laying down your life in service for the people around you, your boss and those underneath you? Consider others more highly than yourselves. Function with integrity, honor, and honesty that brings about long-term gain. Not dishonesty that brings about short-term gain, long-term train wreck. Opportunity to, to demonstrate generosity in our workplaces. A softness of heart and attitude. Being quick to forgive. Can you imagine if we just... For some reason, we feel like in our workplaces, it's okay to be hard and stern and short and... Oh, bringing the softness of God in our workplaces. Quick to forgive, holding short account with people. Pastor the people in your world. God's put you in their lives to pastor them. Love them, support them, encourage them. Be their biggest fan, whether they're a believer or not. They are God's beloved people. And then realize and embrace the gift that work is as part of God's shaping and training and disciplining and discipling of you to make you a more robust believer who does all to the glory of God. The last few minutes, I'd like to ask Sarah and Adam and Ben Jones, don't, don't panic, Ben Gatley, uh, to come up and just share with us a couple of moments about their experiences of the workplace, making workplace decisions, career decisions, and how the gospel has affected that. Guys, would you just qu quickly, let's run up. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, Sarah, you're in the charity sector. You, you work for a charity. Did the fact that you were a believer affect the decision to go into that career, and why? Um, I guess God gave me a passion, a bit like your diagram, for family and children. 
And I guess I chose to be a social worker, trained to be a social worker, because I wanted to have an influence in the whole of the family. Yeah. And then stumbled into this job, kind of God-given or whatever, about four and a half years ago. And because it's a Christian charity, yeah, I thought I could use all my skills and passions to have influence there. Yeah. Um, did the fact that you're a believer, because presumably there are lots of unbelievers that, that also work there, non-Christians. Um, no, we're mostly Christians. Yeah. There's a couple of non-Christians that do work there. But yeah, because, I mean, I think being the manager, I can have that influence and kind of all the passions that I've got in me that can kind of trickle down through the charity and through the, the staff and the, the programs that we run and the, um, the services that we deliver can come right from that. And I think the staff that aren't Christians they have the same, they would consider themselves to have the same values, but we still pray, we still talk about Jesus in front of them. It's something that they yeah. accept. So you're uniquely positioned to be able to speak very openly yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. about your faith. And yeah. I mean, what does that mean to you? Um, well, I think it's, it's great because the families that we work with, I, I kind of use the um, example of it's not just enough to feed the hungry and to serve the poor, but um, it allows us to have a platform to preach the gospel and to show the love of God. Um, we're always offering to pray for people, inviting them along to churches and, and kind of building them into other church families that, that we do. And um, yeah, it's kind of part of our ethos and part of what we do, what we eat and live and breathe. And um, yeah, it just means that when people are unwell, we can pray for healing. When people are, you know, um, I chatted to a lady who was on the verge of suicide not so long ago, and I was able to share that, could I pray for her, and chatted to her a few days later, and things had really turned around. So all of that kind of thing, all the time, it just means that I can completely live out the gospel to the families wow. that we work with. Wow, that is incredible. Thank you. If, Adam, you're, you're in the education sector. You're a teacher. Quite different. It's a government institution. Um, but in, in terms of becoming a teacher, first and foremost, was that an active decision on your part related to faith in any way? Yep, it was. Um, so I could have gone, at the time of choosing to become a teacher, I could have gone in two quite different directions. So my, my degree was business studies, and I briefly worked in the financial services after my degree. Um, but it was when I was, um, I stopped doing that and I started working for a church. And it's when I was working for a church and I went, I did some youth work, and I also went into secondary schools and did some, um, did some clubs in secondary schools. And it was there where I really discovered, where I've actually got a knack for relating to young people, and they seemed to enjoy relating to me as well. Mm. Um, and so it seems like after that, I could have, after doing my church year, I could either have gone back into financial services or pursue working with children and young people which is what I decided to do in the end, mainly because I had a passion for it, I had seemed to have a knack for it as well. Um, and it's a bit like your diagram, so where, where there's a passion, where there's a need, and where there's um, mm. uh, some gifting involved, yeah. you know, that is where the sweet spot is. And so yeah. it seems right within me to go down that route rather than go down my uh, previous yeah. route, which I was going down. Adam, yeah. can, can you share any kind of joys or challenges around actually being a Christian in your workplace, in the school system? Uh, what is it like? Can you live out your faith? Yes, definitely. Um, I think in, in my context, I work for a CV school. 
um, which is, um, gives you various freedoms in terms of talking about your faith. So I can talk about my faith with, um, with children, and it's actually encouraged, whereas if I was to speak in the same way, and I've got friends who work in, uh, who do like RE in different schools where they've actually got into trouble and been told to be quiet, otherwise, you know, your job might be, um, mm. might, might be on the line type of thing, but I am, I'm, I can, because we've got a C of E status. Although there's only actually two Christians in the school, um, we can both talk freely about our faith wow. as and how we want to. So we're wow. uniquely positioned in that school to yeah. be able to share with hundreds and hundreds of kids yeah. uh, the gospel and goodness of good Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any challenges with being a teacher and being a Christian that you've come across? Um, like I said, in my school, um, because it's C of E status and we have that freedom to talk about our faith, um, etc. It's it's okay. Yeah. Um, if I was doing the same thing in a different context, so my housemate, um, she does it in a different context, and she has more pressures there in terms of what she can say and what she feels right. she needs to keep a lid on, type of thing. Um, but like that, like I said, um, me and my coworker, we're, we're the only sort of Christians in, in the workplace. So whilst we're talking freely about our faith. We, we've got to make sure we're living out at the same time. Yeah. And so like in any other workplace, there's those challenges of living out your faith in front of others yeah. uh, and being that sort of beacon. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Thank you. Ben, you've got a similar story to me in that my first job I entered before I, I was a believer, which is a military life, which is very, uh, for some, like how do you believe, be a believer and go to the military? Um, I rationalized that I, made a, I, I was able to, to get in line with military life as a believer, um, but there were still challenges because of the, the direction I'd chosen. You were similar. You've gone into um, the arts, the, sort of the, the design world, pre-becoming a, a believer. Um, how have you navigated that line in terms of now coming to faith and how your work is related? Yeah, I, I don't know whether the, that's, that's the interesting that you're both talking about how the gospel has such strong groundings in what you do. It's, it's very different in my work. Yeah. I mean, my, it's obviously, your diagram explains it quite well. It's a gifting, it's a passion. Yeah. Um, I was always creative, I was always artistic, so I wanted to do that as my career. Yeah. Um, and it sort of points towards what you're talking about, about self-gratification in that I wanted to do what made me happy, that kind of thing. So that's where I went with it. Um, but... I think there's more time spent in my work for, I'm, I'm always on my own. I'm not sort of, I, I work always through a screen. I'm never, I'm never liaising directly with people. Most yeah. of my clients are different places around the globe. So there'll be people in Belgium and in, Fr in France and in Asia and all over the place. So I'm never actually interacting directly with a person. So to actually try and, you know, mm. be God-centered in my work is very difficult. Yeah. Because um, always emails and stuff. But I think it's that gift, that trying to work with a passion for mm. what I do and to try and do, you know, use my gifts for the best purpose I can, mm. I can give them. So for those of us who do sit in front of screens very often, we live email lives, it's an online life, um, how would you encourage them to live out their faith even through that element of it? 
Um, well, I, I have to... Being creative every day is quite difficult, so I, I often ask for strength to be for creativity. I would pray about it if I'm having a tough time with something. Mm. Um, I will seize opportunities when I'm around people that I can get into conversations with. Um, last month, I know, last week even, for example, I've got a colleague, a designer in Belgium, who's having a tough time um, with the changes going on. It's a corporate world and it's very, very cutthroat and people being made redundant. There's low, uh, low finance issues at the moment. We're not doing great, all that kind of stuff. So there's a bit of unrest and mm. she's just having a bit of a tough time. She's had trouble with uh, the companies cracking down on working from home, that type of thing. And I got the opportunity to talk to her about wow. how she's doing and to say I would pray for her. And this is all through uh, instant messaging. And, you know, she was receptive to it, which was great. She wow. might have, I sort of said, I'm not sure, I know you don't believe this, mm. but I'm going to pray for you. Um, and she, she said, um, actually, that's fantastic. Mm. So that, you know, that finding those opportunities in an environment like that are great. And when they come, they're like little jewels. But um, I think it's, you have to be careful as well, because in the corporate world, you're not, you're not encouraged to be open about those yeah. type of things. So it's all very PC, that type of stuff. Outstanding. Guys, thank you. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.